Welcome to WORT's Weekend Review, a collection of our favorite stories from our nightly news show on the mighty WORT 89.9 FM, community-powered radio broadcasting from Bedford Street in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dylan Brogan. On Monday, the Verona City Council voted to close a TIF district that contains most of the Epic Systems campus. The decision came after a city financial analysis revealed that the district has generated more than $239 million of taxable value, more than enough to repay the city's investments by next year. Verona's financial director said half of the tax revenue might go to property tax relief as required by state law, and the rest of it has already been earmarked for ongoing expenses and upcoming projects. However, the city will get a one-time payment of about $6 million, which the council will have to decide how to use. WRT's Cameron Bren filed this report. Verona established a new tax incremental financing district in 2005 when they were approached by Epic Systems with an interest in a site for building a new world headquarters. Verona already had active TIF districts, but none with the land area Epic was looking for. City Finance Director Cindy Engelke says the partnership the city has had with Epic through the TIF district has been overwhelmingly positive. The city of Verona and Epic have had a very positive collaborative relationship from the start all the way through. And everything that's been done has mutually benefited the city and Epic. Engelke says the city had projections of how much taxable value would be generated and was able to begin working those numbers into their long-term budget planning. She says at this point, most of it has been earmarked for upcoming projects and expenses, such as street repairs, equipment and facility replacement, administrative costs that were being billed to the TIF district, repayment to the fund balance, and the purchasing of a new ambulance. For the part that we're able, our levy authority, yeah, we have kind of earmarked it for what would put us in a good position going forward that would make, you know, some really good responsible choices for us. The other remainder will be tax reduction because we can't levy all of that new capacity. Engelke points out that half of the tax revenue will have to be used for property tax relief as required by state law. She says early projections show a decrease in the mill rate of about 10%. The $393 million of taxable value created by Epic will provide a surplus of $21 million after repaying the more than $30 million invested by the city through the TIF district. The $21 million will be handed over to the district's taxing entities in a one-time cash payment. It will be divvied up with the city getting about $6 million, the school district about $11 million, Dane County about $3 million, and Madison Area Technical College nearly $1 million. Engelke says there has been some discussions about how the city will spend the money, but final plans have yet to be decided. Because of the, you know, the growth and, and the families living here in Verona, there's been talk about how would we use that one-time $6 million. And we've talked about taking a portion of it and paying off maybe some of our debt which would be a one-time cost. We've also talked about capital projects. And one of the ones that I know that has come up is maybe a splash park or something, you know, for the young people who live here in Verona, you know, to benefit them. And so, but it would be a one-time type expenditure and it would be capital in nature. Engelke says the closing of the TIF district will probably mean the end of any new TIF agreements with Epic, but it will not be the end of TIF in Verona. I don't think it's the end of TIF because we... When this EPIC TIF 7 has been active, we were beyond the, we couldn't create any new TIFs or amend any TIFs because we were over that threshold um, of their maximum equalized value that was in the TIF district. So now when this TIF closes, 
we will have that capacity again to create a new TIF, amend an existing TIF, and yeah, I certainly expect that's going to happen. So I think that our downtown TIF, they've got ideas, you know, wanting to, I don't know whether that would be amending it or, but maybe doing something more with the downtown TIF. And then I'm sure that there's development that would like to utilize this TIF capacity. Anglekey says Epic is likely to keep expanding, but has already reached the boundaries of land eligible for use in a TIF district. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Cameron Brent. Once confined to the northern part of Wisconsin, ticks have recently migrated into Dane County and are often bringing Lyme disease with them. WRT's Patrick Waring has the story. A decade ago, deer ticks were unheard of in Dane County. The gross little blood-sucking parasites which carry Lyme's disease were confined to the north woods. But recently, University of Wisconsin entomologists discovered some in our backyard. Take a listen. Around five years ago, we had been looking for ticks actually for a number of years right in our own backyard and had never found them. And then a colleague actually trapped a mouse and found one tiny larva on the mouse. And the next year we went in and looked um, and started finding lots of them, uh, lots as relative <laughs> to, to nothing. But yeah, we did finally pick them up about five years ago. And um, we started a project in the Arboretum and so we've been tracking them ever since. That was Dr. Susan Paskowitz an entomology professor at the UW. While there are nowhere near as many ticks here as in the Northwoods, they are definitely on the rise. It turns out the culprit for the spread of deer ticks is, well, deer. You know, ticks um, have been in Wisconsin, known to be in Wisconsin since at least the 1950s, um, but probably because of big changes in the landscape and the deer population, they were really forced back into very small populations. And then as the deer came back and the forest came back, the ticks came back, first in the northwestern part of the state, but then they have, um, since that time, moved into the rest of the state, albeit some places more slowly than others. I think they've moved more slowly into the southern part of the state as well as the east eastern part because that is really heavily agricultural and these ticks don't like kind of open fields or areas so it just takes them a while to find their way into the forested areas where they tend to do much better. Despite the uptick in the nasty little pests, Paskowitz says that the arboretum is still perfectly safe as long as you stick to the trails. Well, so now um, if you're walking on the trail, in the, um, on a nice hard-packed trail, uh, you're still not going to be encountering very many of the, these ticks in, in the Arboretum or in other parks in the Madison area. The populations here are still pretty low compared to many of the other places where we look in the state. Um, it's only when you go off the trail and start kind of uh, moving your way through the brush, uh, brushy areas are places where the ticks are often kind of hiding out. And so there you might have more of a risk of contacting them. So I think our numbers right now or you have a risk, if you're not on the trail, uh, of encountering a tick, maybe about one nymph every 100 to 500 meters off trail. If you do need to go stomping off into the brush, there are some simple precautions you can take to minimize contact with ticks. Some of the same repellents that you would use to keep mosquitoes off you will also work to keep the ticks um, at bay. And then if you use um, some common sense and just stay on the trails, uh, you know, when we're out there actually working, we do do that 
trick where you tuck your pants into your socks. Uh, if you're going to be out cutting brush or something like that, that might make sense if you're really going to be in areas where you would expect higher exposure. After spending time in a wooded area, Paskowitz recommends a thorough tick check. This is important because the immature ticks that are most likely to spread Lyme's disease, known as nymphs, are very hard to see with the naked eye. They're extremely hard to spot. Actually, a small freckle on your arm is about the size of this nymphal stage of the tick. The adults are quite a bit bigger, and so those um, we think most people see those, and they probably get them off early enough. Unfortunately, the, the tiny little nymphs are the stage that can also transmit Lyme disease and some of the other pathogens, and those are really hard to spot, and they uh, don't usually trigger, you don't feel them. You know, They don't trigger your nerves or your little hairs to, to uh, alert you that you've got something crawling on your skin. The danger from tick-borne illnesses is no joke. Left untreated, Lyme's disease can cause meningitis, facial palsy, and permanent arthritis. According to the State Department of Health Services, symptoms of Lyme's disease include a bullseye-shaped rash at the site of the bite, fever, headache, fatigue, stiff neck, and muscle or joint pain. If you have these symptoms after spending time in a wooded area, please consult your doctor. Reporting for WORT News, I am Patrick Waring. UW-Madison's commencement ceremony for the class of 2016 happened this week. Afterwards, many students leave to start their new postgraduate lives, and the population of Madison declines by the thousands for the summer. But what's next for the latest crop of graduates? Our campus reporter Manny Braverman finds out. A significant number of college graduates leave college without a full-time job. Recent studies have shown that roughly one in seven millennials, or those between the ages of 18 and 29, are out of work. Many recent grads with jobs are also underemployed. Underemployment is the term for a college graduate working only part-time or in a job that doesn't require a college degree, such as a barista, waiter, or taxi driver, for example. According to the Pew Research Center, in 2012, 44% of college graduates had jobs that did not require a college degree. However, according to a recent National Association of Colleges and Employers survey, the class of 2016 will be stepping out into one of the best job markets in recent history. They're predicting an 11% increase in hiring of new graduates since this time last year. I wanted to see what graduates were planning to do next, so I found students studying for finals at Union South and asked them about their plans. Well, currently I don't have a job, so I'm currently job seeking. Um, I'm looking for design engineer roles in Los Angeles. I'm just going to go back home to my parents' place in Minnesota and um, continue to apply to jobs. Some students take this time to travel, volunteer, or get some experience interning before they apply for jobs they want. Well, for the first month or so after graduation, I'm going to Europe, and then after that, I'm deciding between uh, internship offers right now. Um, I plan to stay in Madison for the summer, and um, after that, I'll be moving home to Chicago and applying for nursing programs there. Hopefully within the next two years or so, I hope to be done with um, my nursing program so that I can work in a hospital as a uh, certified nurse. And then after that, I think a year I'll be working and making money or saving up money. And then we'll be hopefully doing nurse practitioner after that. So, yeah. Or I have an internship with a company and then I'm also co-oping for a company after that. 
Well, hopefully I'll get a job offer from either one of the companies or I'll send in resumes to other companies to try to look for a full-time job. A few lucky students had jobs lined up and their futures all planned out. I'm going to the Twin Cities in Minnesota to work for an oil refinery. I'm going to work in a suburb of Milwaukee as an ABA therapist and a rehab technician. I want to do these jobs because I want to apply to occupational therapy grad school. It's an exciting, scary, and bittersweet time for a lot of graduates, and a lot of students look back on the time they spent here. I feel like, uh, for me, college, I learned a lot in school, obviously, but a lot of it was just, you know, growing up and just the process of that, um, meeting all sorts of new people, and basically learning how to be an adult and just how to take care of yourself, probably be what I take the most away from it. I also asked students what they would remember the most looking back on their time at Madison. Some talked about school spirit, the times they spent studying, and the people they've met. Definitely my community. Definitely my community. If, if I didn't have the roommates or the friends or the church community that I've had here the past four years, I wouldn't be who I am today and now. Yeah. Times like these, studying for all these exams, putting in all the hard work, and then uh, no, it'll all be worth it in the end, getting this job and going out in the real world and making an impact. But I think, I think the biggest thing what I'll remember is all my friends I've met. Definitely all the people here and the Badger spirit. Um, I was able to live near Camp Randall and every football game, like going outside was so exciting and all of that. I will remember um, the basketball games, especially the Ben Brust buzzer beater that I was fortunate enough to be front row for. As for me, after the ceremony on Saturday, I will be celebrating my hard work the past four years and then heading back home to Minneapolis. I plan to enjoy the summer and start my job search along with the rest of my peers. The students I talked to for this story were Brenda McIntyre, Isabella Graffay, Alina Metzen, John Guay, Ben Wartman, Christina Lindop, and Vivian Au. Reporting for WORT News, this is Maddie Braverman. This week, faculty members at UW-Green Bay overwhelmingly approved a vote of no confidence in university administrators. They're the fifth campus to issue such a vote after the campuses of UW-Madison, Milwaukee, River Falls, and La Crosse passed the same no-confidence vote earlier this month. For more, WORT's Molly Stent spoke with Professor Andrew Austin, chair of the Faculty Senate at UW-Green Bay. Today I'm speaking with Professor Andrew Austin. He's the Chair of Democracy and Justice Studies and Sociology at UW-Green Bay, and he introduced the resolution before the Faculty Senate. So first off, Professor Austin, tell me, why introduce this resolution? So, you know, this tenure task force process that the Board of Regents um, started after Scott Walker and the Republicans took tenure out of statute and we were told at the time that you know we were unique as a state for having tenure in statute, that this isn't really a big problem, that the Board of Regents would protect tenure. And then they started this tenure task force process. And um, throughout that process, representatives from the various UW campuses tried you know, to, to change the direction that the Regents and Raycross were pursuing. It was pretty clear. The, the direction they were heading, heading in because we were given drafts of this document uh, over time. The damage that uh, is promised by the tenure task force documents, which, you know, uh, passed the Board of Regents uh, without any 
any alteration, really, uh, was a substantial weakening of academic freedom and shared governance. And these are not only, you know, the cornerstone of of, uh, of uh, higher education in the United States, but but they're also uh, instrumental in our ability to deliver the Wisconsin idea uh, to the citizens of the state. And uh, it just reached a point where we gave them the benefit of the doubt while trying to, you know, nudge them in the right direction time and time again. But once, uh, when they held the Board of Regents meeting here at, on our campus and flatly rejected UW-Madison's policy that was uh, was developed in a, to address the policies that, that they wanted to see imposed, and the way in which they, Ray Cross, you know, described the chancellors as in presenting the effect of these cuts as whining uh, and so forth, we just reached a point where we we ask ourselves the question, do we have confidence in the leadership of the system to uh, to honor their commitment to to the Wisconsin idea and to the university system? And uh, the answer to that question is no. So uh, Madison took the lead uh, with, as you, you know, you've been following that story. Um, Chad Goldberg authored the resolution, which which I feel is wonderfully written, um, expresses our interest. And the other resolutions have been based on, on that. And um, you know, we had the you mentioned River Falls and Milwaukee. Um, also, uh, Lacrosse uh, unanimously passed uh, their resolution. So um, this has real momentum and expresses our our collective sentiments across the system. And how has the discussion been on campus? Has it been robust? Yes, there's been robust discussions. Working with our chancellor at the beginning of two thousand, well, beginning of the school year in two thousand fifteen, I uh, had secured from him a memo which uh, affirmed his uh, support of uh, of academic freedom and uh, faculty uh, shared governance, you know, as it had existed, um, and uh, we felt very good about that. And then in December, we passed a resolution unanimously uh, calling on the systems chancellors and the Board of Regents to uphold tenure, you know, by, you know, according to AAUP standards. And um, so we felt really, you know, really good about that. And so uh, when when the resolution was brought to the campus community uh, last week, uh, there was a vigorous discussion in the UC, um, but uh, uh, obviously not opposition to bringing forth the um, the resolution. It was widely supported, my sense of it. But and the fact that it was brought forward by the UC, there's a mechanism by which the faculty could bring it forward, but it, it did go through the the full complement of faculty governance structures. Uh, and my discussions with faculty around campus has been um, have been very supportive of it. What fallout has your campus seen from the budget cuts? We saw um, a series of, of uh, early retirement uh, buyouts where we had several of our you know wisest uh, faculty. Um, uh, leave um, because of that. I, I guess you probably know that statewide there's been about 1,400 faculty who have left uh, because of these budget cuts. Our enrollment is down. Our tuition is down. Uh, the state funding is down. And so we've been surviving for the past few years on the tuition rollover dollars, uh, the, you know, the, the, those, the alleged reserves that uh, were so supposedly so terrible. If you remember a couple of years ago, that were used as a argument to justify cutting the budgets. 
I think we've managed to do a little bit better than some of the other campuses. But I have to tell you, we're at the end of the we're at the end of that. And um, if um, if we can't see funding restored, if we if we don't have a board of regents and a president who can vigorously argue uh, for uh, restoring funding, uh, base funding to our budget. Uh, I don't see how we can um, move forward without seeing layoffs like we've seen at other other campuses. Do you have a sense of which departments or programs are most vulnerable with these changes to tenure? Yeah, well, that does worry me. Um, we haven't had any indications from the administration about program discontinuance, so we haven't we haven't confronted that. But I think the great fear is that, that that could very well happen. The larger environment is one in which, you know, Walker wanted to take the Wisconsin idea out of the mission of the university. If we look at, uh, you know, who funds his campaigns, if we, if we look at, you know, who his operatives are, uh, we see uh, uh, persons who are very much interested in, you know, a neoliberal privatizing of the university system, taking the four-year institutions and vocationalizing them. There's, you know, this is this whole embodied in this rhetoric of flexibility and so forth. And so when we talk about flexibility and program discontinuance and, and that makes its way you know, into the policies, it signals to me that there's a review of all the programs we have and those programs that I think are crucial to the to the mission, the fundamental mission of the institution, the general education programs, the liberal arts programs, and the humanities, and the social sciences, and the arts and music, are uh, at risk uh, by calls for programs that have a more vocational nature. And I don't have anything against vocational training. We do have a system of vocational training in Wisconsin. The concern is is that with limited resources and with the this new tools of flexibility, that in the process of program review we would see uh, a, a desire manifesting in uh, taking resources away from those programs, which maybe uh, have low enrollment, which may not be seen by the business community as having any relevance to what they're doing, in favor of programs, again, that have a more vocational emphasis. So, you know, given the rhetoric that we hear, given the mechanisms that are now being put into place, to me that portends a, tr- a, trouble- a troubling uh, picture of the future. Well, thank you. We have been speaking with Professor Andrew Austin of the University of Green Bay, where the Faculty Senate has just passed a vote of no confidence in the UW administration. commentary from Blue Jean Nation, Mike McCabe says it's time to retire trickle-down economics. I'm Mike McCabe from Blue Jean Nation, and this is your Democracy Checkup. (laughs) 
close to 40 years now, America's economy has been under the spell of trickle-down economics. Feed the rich policies have worked like a charm in one regard. They've made the rich vastly richer. With everyone else's earnings stagnating, the gap between America's rich and the rest has grown dramatically by every statistical measure since trickle-down took hold of our economy. There are good reasons why the only thing trickle-down economics does well is produce income and wealth inequality. Feed the rich and they don't eat much of what they're fed. They store it away. They amass more wealth. Every dollar added to their net worth is a dollar out of circulation that creates no multiplier effect in the economy. Put more money in the pockets of everyday workers and consumers and they spend it. That creates demand. When someone wants to buy, someone else is eager to sell. The economy is stimulated. On the other hand, you can shower incentives on corporations and the super wealthy to supply more goods, but if no one is buying what they're making, the factories will be shuttered in no time. Demand drives economic growth, not supply. Shared prosperity doesn't trickle down, it springs from the ground up like a geyser. Shifting from failed trickle-down economics to geyser economics means concentrating on stoking demand rather than trying to politically manipulate supply. Boosting wages is a good place to start. That's because workers earning more end up spending more. Good capitalists always figure out how to supply what consumers are demanding. They scale up their operations to meet the increased demand. Critical next step toward geyser economics is overhauling taxation. America effectively has two tax systems, one for the rich and another for the rest. That needs to change. We don't need new taxes. We do need to make sure everyone pays the ones we already have. That will reduce the share of total taxes paid by low-income and middle-class Americans, leaving them with more to spend on other things. Big business handouts are a favorite recipe in the trickle-down cookbook. Funny how so many of the handouts wind up hidden in shell companies and tax havens overseas and don't actually create any additional supply or jobs here at home. States have fallen in love with this recipe too. Wisconsin's corporate welfare office spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year, creates no noticeable economic stimulation and hardly any jobs, and can't even seem to keep track of how the taxpayer's money is spent. We're better off taking the money wasted on handouts to corporations and the ultra-wealthy and in investing it instead in things like affordable debt-free education. With young Americans spending 20, 30, even 40 years paying off student loans, think of how many are putting off purchases of cars and houses and other such goods. Imagine what it would do for auto manufacturers, car dealers, home builders, and realtors if we made education as affordable for today's youth as it was for us older folks. You don't think they'd gladly supply what legions of young Americans would suddenly be able to buy? There's a geyser ready to blow if we're smart enough to shift our attention from supply to demand. For WORT News, I'm Mike McCabe. It's May, and morel mushrooms are gracing the tables of farmers' markets around Wisconsin. WORT's Molly Stentz checks out these pricey little delicacies. From Madison, Wisconsin, this is the Farmer's Market Report. I'm your host, Molly Stentz. Today I speak with Jim Jones of Gaze Mills, Wisconsin, who is selling morel mushrooms at the Wednesday Dane County Farmer's Market. What do you want to know? How they grow? They come out of the ground like a coal black, like a little pencil lead, if you can find them early enough. 
Then they should go through the gray stage, the yellow stage, the brown stage, and they start getting into the still good, but darker brown as they're starting to dry out. And while they're drying out is when they release their spore. When you find a patch, you never, never, never pick the first one you find. Why? Because you have to leave 10% of the mushrooms in that patch to create spore for the next year's crop. So if you find pick the first one you find, maybe that's the only one in that patch. It's the new patch starting. Wow. Cover it up with leaves. When you find a patch, leave the first one. Pick nine, leave one. Pick nine, leave one. Pick nine, and mark the ones you leave so you don't accidentally pick them again. And, and then you cover them up with leaves so the animals and stuff don't get to them. And the spores will come out through the leaves to create your next year's crop. If you pick every mushroom you find in a crop, in a patch, you'll never find them there again. I have found them in one spot for 29 years running. What tips do you have for people looking? What, what should they look for? Stay off of other people's property. People are now starting to carry guns because of trespassers stealing not only morels, but they're also stealing uh, ginseng. Right, right. What, and so if people were looking on state if you land... Get from, if you get... State land, DNR land, stuff like that is uh, legal to anybody can look at. And you just, uh, I don't know, I've been looking since I was knee-high to a short-legged caterpillar. I was born and raised on a dairy farm. And I was bringing in mushrooms and other things, edibles, uh, when I was two or three years old. On your farm? On my farm. That, uh, you know, I'd go out chasing cows, bring the cows up from the milking and take a bag with me to bring mor morels back at the same time. And what are the things you look for? Morels. That's about it. You just look for the morel that you want to find. Some people will say, uh, look for a dead elm. Well, those are the short-lived patches. There's about one out of 30 or 40 dead elms will find mushrooms under it, but you're only find there for two or three years. You'll also find them on old orchards, apple trees of whatever kind. In 96, I was selling on the square up here, and right across the sidewalk on the Capitol lawn, there was three of them, about four or five inches tall. I was sitting there, I was laughing all day long, watching these mushrooms across the lawn from me while I'm trying to sell them. And why nobody seen what I was selling and seen them over there and wouldn't pick them? I don't know, but they were still there when I left in the afternoon. Did you pick them? I didn't have permission to. And how many have you got this year? This year has been a poor year. It's a late year. Uh, two years ago was even later than this year. But uh, probably so far this year, I might have eight, nine pounds, something like that, I've been able to find. I did, day before yesterday, find one good patch. It was about four pounds in that one patch. It's the best patch I've found so far this year. Other years, one year in particular, I remember that uh, <clears throat> I found, I don't know how many. I know I had two paper grocery bags, just about as full as I could get them out of one patch. And what, so, it was warmer earlier or what? This is the, the reason for it being bad year this year is because it's been so cold, yeah. Due to this global warming coldness we've had around here this spring. This spring. Okay, okay. And what about rain? The morel is a mushroom that grows during the rain. It will go semi-dormant between rains, 
come next rain, it will suck up moisture. It's a super succulent, even more so than the cacti. It will, during, while it's raining, it will suck up moisture and grow. When it quits raining, it quits growing and will stay at that stage size until the next rain when it will suck up more moisture and grow some more. Do you think so. this weekend people are going out, there would they would still find some after the rains this week? There's probably quite, I'm quite sure that there's some out there someplace. Uh, usually is. This coming weekend is the Mushroom Festival in Muscaday, which uh, is a good place to buy cooked mushrooms. They fry them down there for people if they have them. Quite often, it's, uh, some years they don't have them. Some years they run out. Some years they have more than they can sell. So, I mean, you know. Do you ever get any reactions from customers about the price for seeing it for the first time? A lot of customers, if they see it for the first time, they'll say, wow, that's expensive. But uh, a gentleman just walked past a little bit ago. And he asked what the price was, and I told him what it is. Oh, that's cheap this year, isn't it? So, I mean, you know, $4 an ounce, uh, $5 an ounce. Uh, depends on the individual customer whether they think it's expensive or cheap. So, I mean, you know. Do you remember the guy that they thought they got rid of in Guyana? Jim Jones? That's my name. I'm a disabled veteran, and so I cannot work because of a bad back. And so what else have I got to do with my time other than, you know, spend my time playing around. Thanks for joining us on the Farmer's Market Report. See you next week. Finally this week, we have the latest offering from Sarah's Table, gluten-free chocolate coconut donuts. They might be flour-free, but Sarah promises you won't know the difference. Hello and welcome to Sarah's Table. This is a weekly show where I invite you to share what's on my table. I'm not a trained chef. I just like to cook, eat, and drink well with good friends. Come join me. One of the tests of a great cook is their ability to roll with the various dietary needs and preferences that their friends have. Vegetarian, vegan, paleo, gluten-free, it seems that today there are more and more categories, which as a cook can send you into a tailspin looking for a recipe that not only fits the category, but is delicious. I refuse to cook on tasteful food, sure. It happens. Sometimes it happens. It happens to all of us once in a while. I mean, I'm still getting trouble for a terrible cream of broccoli soup that I made years ago when I thought I could exchange a Pinot Grigio for dry sherry. It was a mistake. I admit it. The lesson was solidly learned. But now, as I cook for my vegan buddies or gluten-free fins, I refuse, unless an accident, to cook foods that taste less than. You know what I'm talking about. They are okay, but they feel like something is missing. And I used to think that there was something missing. I'd be like, yeah, it misses butter or cream. Now I know that they just needed a bit more fine tuning as recipes and a little bit more love. The recipe that I'll share with you today is a fantastic option for your friends who have a sweet tooth, but who also have gluten intolerance. 
I promise you, you will not know the difference. In fact, I think these little amazing chocolatey coconut donuts are better without the wheat. The prominence of the coconut keeps them moist and full, while the chocolate and dates give them a rounded sweet depth. You will not know the difference and you'll continue to come back for more. When my friend Nicole first made these donuts, I not only knew that I needed the recipe, but I also knew that I needed a plateful. Here is how you make them. You'll need 10 medjool dates pitted, one tablespoon of vanilla extract, six eggs, a half a cup of coconut flour, a half a teaspoon of grounded cinnamon, one fourth teaspoon of salt, one fourth teaspoon of baking soda, a third of a cup of cocoa powder, one half cup of coconut oil melted, then you'll need dark chocolate and shredded coconut for the topping. To make these, you'll first preheat the oven to 350 and generously grease a donut pan with coconut oil. You'll then place the pitted dates with one tablespoon of water in a heat-resistant bowl and microwave on high for 30 seconds. You'll remove and add an additional tablespoon of water and mash the dates into a paste. In the bowl of a food processor, you'll then add the date paste, vanilla extract, and eggs and process the mixture to combine. You can then add the coconut flour, cinnamon, salt, baking soda, and cocoa powder, as well as the melted coconut oil to the food processor and mix until all the ingredients are well incorporated. You'll stop and scrape the down the sides of the bowl. Next, you'll fill the coconut pan circles two-thirds of the way full with batter and bake for 15 to 20 minutes or until a toothpick comes out clean. Now, if you do not have coconut pans, do not fret. You can make coconut balls. You'll roll the dough into one to one and a half inch balls and bake for 10 minutes until they are firm and until a toothpick comes out clean. You'll then carefully remove the donuts or the donut balls from the pan and continue to cool. Next is time for the topping. For the topping, you're going to place the chocolate in a double broiler or in a microwave safe bowl and heat until melted. Carefully place the top of the donut face down in the chocolate to evenly coat the top. You'll then lift it and dip it into the shredded coconut and then place the donut, coconut and chocolate side up on the wire rack to dry a little bit further. I encourage you to make these for a brunch date or even a dinner potluck where you know there will be diversity of food needs and preferences represented. All those who are gluten-free and even those who are going paleo will be so pleased with you. I wouldn't be surprised if you got kissed on your lips. Please enjoy. That'll do it for WORT's Week in Review. We are live from our downtown studios Monday through Thursday at 6 o'clock over on the FM dial 89.9. You can also listen live or anytime at WORTFM.org. Thank you to our contributors this week, Cameron Bren, Patrick Waring, Maddie Braverman, Mike McCabe, and Sarah McKinnon. Molly Stentz is the news director at WORT, and my name is Dylan Brogan.
keep listening to the ward. You'll know what's going on out there.